This past May, the uh, Centers for Disease Control announced that if you are fully vaccinated, you can stop wearing a mask in most places, either outdoors or inside. Remember that? It was like we were all playing Monopoly and we suddenly drew the get out of jail free card. <laughs> it felt so good. And uh, so many, many stores and restaurants immediately changed their policies and went along and said, if you're fully vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask in our establishment. But since we have no vaccination passport, there's absolutely no way to check whether somebody actually was vaccinated. Um, what happened was exactly what we all knew would happen, <laughs> which was people who had not yet gotten a vaccine and maybe would never stopped wearing a mask. At that point, about 60% of US adults had gotten at least one dose, meaning not even 60% were fully vaxxed, right? And yet my observation walking up and down the aisles of Jewel was like 80, 90% of the people in here are not wearing masks. So not wearing a mask was supposed to be proof that you had been vaccinated. Ha ha ha. So anyway, so people have wised up and they've begun asking for a different kind of proof. Karen and I are gonna go see uh, the musical Cinderella at Paramount Theater in Aurora this month. And we've already gotten four or five emails from Paramount saying, no kidding, every person, you must show a proof of vaccination card. And to make sure that you're not borrowing your cousin's card, you also have to have a photo ID. And because sometimes people can forge either one of those, you still have to wear your mask throughout the entire show. So as a culture, apparently we now have two ways of establishing, showing proof that we've been vaccinated. The first way is stop wearing your mask. And that's the proof. And the second way is show us your vax card, show us your photo ID, oh, and still wear a mask. <laughs> Different ways of showing proof. Well, tonight's gospel asks us a similar question about showing proof. And what it's asking about is even more critical than whether you and I have been vaccinated. And the question is this, how do we show proof we've repented? How would you do that? How would I do that? That we are seriously turning from our sins and turning toward God. What would be the proof? Would it be we feel bad for what we've done that is not in line with God's will? Is it tears? Is it saying to God, I'm sorry? Is it telling people we've hurt, I'm sorry? Well, this is not a question we can ignore. We cannot, cannot duck this one, and we can't just move on because the word repent is on the lips of every messenger from God. Jesus preaches it. He starts out right away. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Peter preaches it. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And John the Baptist preaches it, as you heard tonight. Prove you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Even now, the acts of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Now, thankfully for us, John goes on to clearly teach 
what is that real proof that you and I have repented? And with God's help, I want to make that crystal clear tonight. My hope is that when this sermon's done, there will not be one person who can walk out of here and go, I didn't know. Nobody ever told me what repentance looked like. And then the only question will be for me and for you, what will we do with what we know? Let's dive in. When John shows up, there has not been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. And suddenly, walking up out of the desert near the Dead Sea comes John, who's wearing a rough black coat made out of camel hair. And Jesus calls him the greatest person who's ever lived until now. And John comes with a message in Luke 3, in chap, uh, chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. So we could close our Bibles right there and say, well, we got our answer. It's baptism. But apparently, as good as baptism is, that is not sufficient proof of repentance because John says four verses later, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he says, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Now, who is he calling snakes? Like rattlesnakes, copperheads, vipers, poisonous. These are devout religious people who are coming out to him. And that's the problem. John sees, you guys would rather be known for being good by coming out here and doing the baptism thing than actually turn to God in your brokenness and really change. And that kind of touches near to where we live, isn't, doesn't it? I mean, we all would like others to think we're decent folk. It is very hard to open up and go, this is what's really going on. Would you help? And so baptism alone is not proof we've repented. And John goes on to say, neither is your past religious experiences, commitments, heritages. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can take rocks and make kids for Abraham. Now, having a direct connection to Abraham, the father of faith, that actually is a huge gift and advantage. Truly. But John says, don't hide behind your spiritual advantages. Don't say, hey, I've already kind of done my religious thing. So let us ask, how might you and I, people who believe the Bible and who worship Jesus, tell ourselves that we don't really have to repent? We don't have to work on deep life change. Obviously, we don't say, I'm a child of Abraham, right? No, but I do think we have our own creative religious defense shields. Let me try a couple on you. One I, I hear is repentance is for non-believers. I needed to do that once when I decided to follow Jesus Christ, but now that I'm a believer, I don't need to do that. That's for those who are coming to faith, not for me, who have faith, I'm done. Why is it then that when the risen Lord Jesus Christ writes letters to seven different churches, to four of the seven, he says, repent. 
He's writing to Christians. But here's what I think our favorite religious shield is to keep us from really actually having to repent, and that is, I'm under grace. We almost never think about, we almost never talk about the coming judgment of Jesus Christ before which every one of us must stand. Instead, we talk about grace, grace, grace. Now, I believe in grace. You can go online and listen to my sermons from Galatians, and I will say as boldly as I know how that you and I are saved through only one means, and that's grace through faith and not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. So I really believe that, but there is real grace and there is fake grace. Real grace is what moves us to repent. Fake grace is what tells us we don't have to. Real grace says it's his kindness that moves us to repentance. It's his grace that actually inspires us to go ahead and repent. And fake grace says, I don't really need to work on that issue in my life, that pattern that's been developing the way I treat other people, because I'm saved. I threw a pine cone on the fire when I was a junior high at Bible camp. And John tells us in just six words exactly how you and I can prove we have repented of our sins. Prove by the way you live. Now that leaves us with a question, what does that look like? Like, I need more specifics. And John gives them in the Q&A. The crowds ask, verse 10, what should we do? And John replied, well, if you've got two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. The first picture of a, of a repenting life, of a life that takes God seriously and that takes turning away from our consumerist culture seriously is that we practice generosity. We change our mindset about money. We stop looking at it as mine to use and we start looking at it as God's to share. God knows you need money. He knows you need those things. Savings is fine. But do you see the difference? Back in the 80s, here in Chicago, there was a guy named George White. Uh, he lived uh, in, a, in a room that he rented at the Y. And most mornings, uh, he, oh, George had one set of clothes, and his shoes were wrapped up with rubber bands to keep the, like, soles from flapping when he walked. And so in the morning, he would spend his mornings napping back by the heater in the rear of the 18th Precinct Police Office, in Chicago. And so two officers there at the 18th, Katowski and Mitch, took an interest in the old guy, and they would occasionally slip him a few bucks here or there. And they found out that Billy the Greek over at the G&W Grill gave George a hot breakfast every morning, no charge. And so anyway, so the two policemen and their families decide, you know, Christmas is coming up, we gotta do something for George. So they go, Let, let's have him come. Let's, let's just have him join us for a Christmas dinner. So the families were getting together. Anyway, they just added George to their guest list. And, and during the night, they gave George some presents, which he unwrapped and, and all that. And then later, when they were driving him back to his room at the Y, he said in the car, hey, um, are these presents mine to keep? I'm like, yeah, of course they are. And he's like, oh, okay, well, then we have to stop at the G&W on the way home. And so when they walk into the restaurant, Billy the Greek was there, even on Christmas, as always. And George walks over to him and says, you've been good to me, Billy. Now I can be good to you. Merry Christmas. And he hands him all the gifts that he just got. 
That is a picture of a life that's repenting. Generosity is a part of the picture. Well, here's the second one picture that John gives us. It's in verse 12 and 14. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? And John replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. You could pad your income by doing so, but don't do that. And what should we do, asked some soldiers. Be content with your pay. A repenting life practices contentment. Now, like a number of people here at Savior, I've worked my entire adult life in not-for-profit organizations, and so I'm not going to tell you how I know this, but early on I discovered it is entirely possible to work for a not-for-profit and feel two things at the exact same time. To feel superior, I am so mission-oriented that I am willing to work for less, and resentful. They don't pay me close to what I'm worth. So, you can give yourself credit for being so sacrificial at the same time that you're bitter about being sacrificial. <laughs> okay? And John says, no, no, no. No, be content with your pay. Discontentment is like milk past the expiration date. It sours. It sours the soul. So John has given us these pictures of generosity and contentment. And then he moves to the third one, and this may be one of the most subtle and challenging of all. We stop using our advantages for personal gain. Even the corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? And he replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. Now, sure, you can collect more every day. And you know what? People have no recourse against you because you're backed by the government, which is backed by the military. And in fact, it's expected that you're going to price gouge and extort. And John says, no. What should we do, asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations. You've got a sword. You've got armor. If you tell somebody they're in trouble, then they know what they have to do. They've got to find that money somewhere. And they will, no matter how much it hurts to find that money. And John says, don't do that. Well, what does this look like for us since we're not soldiers or tax collectors? I would ask you this then. Think about a relationship in your life with your roommate, maybe a co-worker at work, uh, a spouse, maybe an ex, maybe a relative. And in this relationship, there are certain advantages that you just have sort of natively. Maybe you are a fast thinker on your feet, so you tend to win arguments. Or maybe you earn more money, and so you have kind of a power differential in the relationship. Or maybe these people in the co-workers report to you, so you, you have authority. Or maybe they have a health condition and they need your care, so you actually are in the more advantageous position. Maybe you've been known to escalate during arguments, and so they're a little scared of you, and that fear is actually giving you an edge. Now, John would ask you, and he would ask me, what are you doing with the advantage that you have? Can we stop for a minute and get real about that? 
Are we using it to get out of doing our share of work in this relationship? Our share of work in the department, in the house? Are we using it to stop owning our part in the issues that are coming up between us because we don't have to? Is the advantage that we have putting into our minds that little thought, but I'm an exception? Back when I was working at Leadership, which is a journal for pastors, a young pastor sent in an article, and, he, and in it he told this story. He said, you know, one evening I stopped by the church just to encourage those who were there rehearsing for the church musical. I didn't intend to stay long, so I, I parked my car next to the entrance, and after a few minutes I ran back to my car and drove home. Well, the next morning I found a note in my office mailbox, and here's what it read. A small thing, but um, Tuesday night when you came to rehearsal, you parked in the no parking area, and one of our members who did not recognize you until after you got out of the car was, oh, there goes one of those jerks parking in the no parking area again. We try hard not to allow people, even staff, to park anywhere other than the parking lot. I would appreciate your cooperation too. So this pastor went on to write, that staff member's stock went up in my book because he had the courage to write me about what could have been a slippage in my character. And he was right on the mark. As I drove up that night, I thought, I shouldn't park here, but after all, I am the pastor. Which translates, he goes on, I'm an exception to the rules. But I'm not an exception to the rules. I'm not an exception to church rules. I'm not the exception to sexual rules or financial rules or any of God's rules. Such profound wisdom. And what pains me is that the young pastor who wrote that was named Bill Hybels. We have these advantages and it's so native to us to use them for our gain instead of using them to empower the people around us and lift them up. Well, there's proof of repentance, friends. There is, there is proof, and it's only one, and it's you prove it by the way you live. It has very little to do with baptism or Bible study or church attendance, as good as all those things are. Repentance goes right to how we handle money, right to how we handle power, right to all the subtle dynamics in our relationships starting tonight. John burrows into our wallets. He goes right into our secret wishes. He takes the direct line into our hearts, and he will not take prisoner. <laughs> I mean, he is wanting us to come to a place where we change. Can I ask you, is the Holy Spirit whispering to you right now? Is God getting your attention? Maybe it was about practicing generosity and and how fear right now is leading you away from that. Maybe it's about contentment and you realize, I really do grumble. What's going on for me about that? Maybe it's you've been using advantage in a, in a way for yourself. You see, if my heart friends were constantly tender, I wouldn't need the warning to repent. But my heart starts to skim over and it starts to harden over. When it comes to generosity, I do start thinking about money as my money, 
not God's money for me to invest and steward for his purposes. When it comes to contentment, I compare myself to others. And you notice, I always compare myself to those who have it much better or seemingly easier than me. Very few times do I compare the other way. And I realize, have you done this? You're in this relationship that I was talking about earlier, you calculate what you're putting into the relationship versus what you're getting out. When you make that calculation based on my empirical experience, you will always calculate that you are putting more in than you are getting out. A lot more. And so then you think, well, they really do owe me. Well, friends, this is a sobering text. Is there any good news in this text? And I, I would say yes, and let me identify some of that for you. First, repentance is possible. The scriptures never ask you or me to do something that we cannot do. Second piece of good news, there is still time. The axe may be laid at the roots, but it has not chopped all the way through. You and I are still here. We're still living. We're still breathing. And if we hear this message, we have time to work to change. And third, John promises, you know what? I'm really just the warm-up. Someone is coming soon who's greater than I, so much greater, I'm not even worthy to be his slave, untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus Christ is greater than John because he pours out upon us the Holy Spirit, the life-giving power of God inside us to motivate us to change, to give us the power to change, the power we don't have on our own. So the discomfort or the conviction that you may be feeling right now is actually a good sign. It's the Holy Spirit going to work and saying, are you ready to work on that? Because the Holy Spirit is saying, I am. And I will give you the grace to repent.